Section 10 of Little Journeys to the Homes of Great Businessmen. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jennifer Painter. Little Journeys to the Homes of Great Businessmen by Albert Hubbard. Chapter 10, Part 2. Philip D. Armour. No living man ever handed out more gratuitous advice than Philip Armour. He was the greatest preacher in Chicago. With every transaction, he passed out a premium in way of palaver. He loved the bustle of business, but into the business he butted a lot of talk. Helpful, good-natured, kindly, paternal talk. And often there was a suspicion that he talked for the same reason that prize-fighters spar for time. Here, Robbins, get off this telegram, and remember that if the rolling stone gathers no moss, it at least acquires a bit of polish. Say, Urian, if you make a success as my lawyer, you have got to get into the rings of Orion. Be there yourself, the same as the man that's to be hanged. You can't send a substitute. To Comes, now Secretary of Armour and Company, I suppose if I told you to jump into the lake, you'd do it. Use your head, young man. Use your sky piece. And he did. This preaching habit was never pedantic, stiff, or formal. It gushed out as the waters gushed forth from the rock after Moses had given it a few stiff raps with his staff. Armour called people by their first names as if they all belonged to his family, as they really did, for all mankind to him were one. He thought in millions, where other big men thought in hundreds of thousands, or average men thought in dozens. Hiram, he once said to the Reverend Hiram W. Thomas, for when he met you, you imagined he had been looking for you to tell you something. Hiram, I like to hear you preach, for you are so deliberate that as you speak, I am laying bets with myself as to which of a dozen things you are going to say. You supply me lots of fun. I can travel around the world before you get to your firstly. For all preachers, he had a great attraction, and it wasn't solely because he was a rich man. He supplied texts, and he supplied voltage. Most men put on a pious manner and become hypocritically proper when a preacher joins a group, but not so Philip Armour. If he used a strong word or a simile uncurried, it was then. They liked it. Mr. Armour, you might use a little of your language for fertiliser if times were hard, once said Robert Collier. He answered, Robert, I'm fertilising a few of your fallow acres now, as anyone who goes to hear you preach next Sunday will find out, if they know me. A committee of four preachers once came to him from a country town a few miles out of Chicago asking him to pay off the debt on their churches. It seems they had heard of the Armour benevolence and decided to beard the lion in his den. He listened to the plea, then figured up on a pad the amount of the debt. It was $1,500. The preachers were encouraged. They had the ejaculation, God bless you, on tap, when Mr. Armour said, Gentlemen, four churches in a town the size of yours are too many. Now, if you will consolidate and three of you will resign and go to farming, I'll pay off this debt now. 
the offer was not accepted. When Armour was asked to subscribe $1,000 to a fund to provide an auditorium and keep Professor Swing in Chicago, Swing having just been tried for heresy, he said, Chicago must not lose Swing, we need him. If I had a few of his qualities, and he had a few of mine, there would be two better men in Chicago today. Yes, we must keep Swing right here. Put me down for a thousand. I don't always understand what Swing is driving at, but that may be my fault. And say, if you find you need five thousand from me, just let me know, and the money is yours. There is no use trying to work the apotheosis of Philip D. Armour. He was in good sooth a man. I make mistakes, but I do not respond to encores, he used to say. When a man told of spending $5,000 on the education of his son, Armour condoled with him thus, Ah, oh, never mind, he'll come out all right. My education is costing me that much every week. One of the big boys at Armour's is a character called Alibi Tom. Time has tamed Alibi, but when he was 22, well, he was 22. Now, Philip Armour was an early riser, and at seven o'clock he used to be at the office ready for business, the office opening at eight. Sometimes he would come even earlier, and if he saw a clerk at work before eight, he might, under the inspiring spell of the brisk early morning walk, step over and give the fellow a five-dollar bill. Well, Alibi had never gotten one of these five-dollar bills, because he was usually in just before St. Peter closed the gate. Several times he had been reproved, and once Mr. Armour had said, Tom, be late once more, and you are a haswazer. Shortly after this, one night, Alibi Tom had a half-dozen stockmen to entertain. They had gone to Hooley's and Sam T. Jack's, then to the Athletic Club, and then they called on Hinky Dink and Bathhouse John, the famous Cook County literary light. Where else they had gone, they could not remember. It was about three o'clock in the morning, when it came over Tom like a pall, that if he started for home now and went to bed, he would surely be late again, and it might cost him his job. He proposed that they make a night of it. The stockmen were quite willing. They headed for the stockyards, stopping along the way to make little visits on certain celebrities. At five o'clock they reached the Armour plant, and Tom stowed his friends away with the help of a friendly watchman. Then he made for the shower bath, rubbed down, drank two cups of coffee, and went to his desk. It was just six-thirty, and being winter, was yet dark. He hadn't any more than yawned twice and stretched himself, wondering if he could hold out until noon, when he heard the quick step of the old man. Tom crouched over his pretended work like a devilfish devouring its prey. He never looked up, he was that busy. Mr. Armour stopped, stared, came closer. Yes! It was Tom, the late alibi Tom, the chronic delinquent. Well, 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 Tom, the Lord be praised. You have given yourself a hunch at last. Keep this. And Armour handed out a brand new crisp five-dollar bill. Tom had now set a stake for himself, and it was up to him to make good, die or hike. 
he decided to make good. The next month his pay was raised $25, and it has been climbing a little every year since. Philip D. Armour was a man of big mental and physical resources, big in brain, rich in vital power, bold in initiative, yet cautious. He had two peculiar characteristics. He refused to own more land than he could use. His second peculiarity was that his only stimulant was tea. If he had an unusually big problem to pass upon, he cut down his food and increased his tea. Tea was his tipple. It opened up his mental pores and gave him cosmic consciousness. Armour had so much personality, so much magnetism, that he had but few competitors in his business. One of these was Nelson Morris. Now Morris was a type of man that Armour had never met. Morris was a Jew, a Bavarian, who affected music, art and philosophy. Nelson Morris, small, smooth of face, humming bars from Bach and quoting Schopenhauer, buying hogs at the Chicago stockyards and then killing these hogs for the gastronomical delectation of Christians, was a sort of all-round Judaic genius. The Mosaic law forbids the Jews eating pork, but it places no ban or bar on their dealing in it. Nelson Morris bought hogs at 4 a.m., or as soon as it was light. Armour found him at it when he arrived, and Philip Armour was usually the earliest bird on the job. Yet Armour wasn't afraid of Morris. The Jew merely perplexed him. One day Armour said to McDowell, his secretary, I say, Mac, Nelson doesn't need a guardian. The Jew was getting on the Armour nerves, just a little. Armour was always on friendly terms with his competitors. As a matter of fact, he was on friendly terms with everybody. He had no grouch and never got into a grump. Socially, he was irresistible. He got up close, invited confidence, made friends and held them. There was never a man he wouldn't speak to. He was above jealousy and beyond hate. Yet, of course, when it came to a showdown, he might hit awfully hard and quick but he always passed out his commercial wallop with a smile. When Sullivan met Corbett at New Orleans, Gentleman Jim landed the champion a terrific jolt with his right, smiled sweetly, and said, To think, John, of your coming all the way from Boston to get that. Also this. Then he gave him another with his left. One morning, at daylight, when Morris got to the stockyards, he found all the pens empty. Armour and his pig buyers had been around with lanterns all night hunting up the owners and bulling the market. "'To think,' said Armour to Morris, "'to think of your coming all the way from Bavaria hoping to get the start of me.' Both men smiled serenely. The next week whole trainloads of pigs were coming to Chicago consigned to Nelson Morris. He had sent his agents out and was buying of the farmers direct. Soon after, Armour casually met Morris and suggested that they lunch together that day. The Jew smiled assent. He had scored a point. Armour had come to him. So they lunched together. The Jew ate very little. Both men talked, but said nothing. They were waiting. The Jew ate little, but he drank three cups of tea. 
Armour insisted on paying the cheque, excused himself somewhat abruptly, and hurried to his office. He sent for his lieutenants. They came quickly, and Armour said, "'Boys, I've just lunched with Nelson Morris. I think we'd better come to an understanding with him as to a few things we shall do and a few we shall not do. He drinks nothing but tea.' Prior to the invention of the refrigerator car, the business of the packer was to cure salt meats and pack them for transportation. Besides this, he supplied the local market with fresh meats. Up to the early 80s, fresh meat was not shipped any distance except in midwinter, and then as frozen meat. Surplus western cattle were shipped east alive, and subject to heavy risks, shrinkage and expense. About 50% of the live weight was dressed beef, balanced non-edible, so double freight was paid on the edible portion. Could this freight be saved? About this time, Hammond of Detroit mounted a refrigerator on car wheels, loaded it with dressed beef, and headed it for New York, where the condition of the meat on arrival satisfied everyone in the trade, except the local slaughterer. The car was crude, but it turned the trick. A new era had arrived. The corn belt came into its own. Corn was king. The steer, the heir apparent. Phil Armour saw the point. Pay freight on edible portions only. Save the waste. Make more out of the critter than the competitor can. Pay more for him. Get him. Sell the meat for less. Get the business. Grow and he got busy perfecting the refrigerator car. Armour called together railroad men and laid the project before them. They objected that a car, for instance, sent from Chicago to New York, would require to be iced several times during the journey, otherwise there might be the loss of the entire load. A car of beef was worth $1,500. The freight was $200 or less. The railroad men raised their hands in horror. Besides transporting goods, they would have to turn insurance company. Armour still insisted that they could and should provide suitable cars for their patrons. The railroad men then came back with this rejoinder. You make your own cars and we will haul them, provided you will ask us to incur only the ordinary risks of transportation. Armour accepted the challenge. It was the only thing to do. He made one car and then twenty. Fresh beef was shipped from Chicago to New York and arrived in perfect order. To ship live cattle long distances he knew was unwise. And he then declared that Omaha, Kansas City, St. Paul and various other cities of the West would yet have great slaughterhouses where livestock could be received after a very short haul. The product could then be passed along in refrigerator cars, and the expense of ice would not be so much as to unload and feed the stock, but better than all, the product would be more wholesome. Armour began to manufacture refrigerator cars. He offered to sell these to railroad companies. A few railroads bought cars, and after a few months proposed to sell them back to Armour, the expense and work of operating them required too much care and attention. Shippers would not ship unless it was guaranteed that the car would be re-iced and that it would arrive at its destination within a certain time. 
In the fall, fresh peaches were being shipped across the lake to Chicago from Michigan. If the peaches were one night on the way, they arrived in good order. This gave Armour an idea. He sent a couple of refrigerator cars around to St. Joseph, loaded them with fresh peaches and shipped them to Boston. He sent a man with the cars who personally attended to icing the cars, just as we used to travel in the caboose to look after the livestock. The peaches reached Boston, cool and fresh, and were sold in an hour at a good profit. At once there was a demand for refrigerator cars from Michigan. The new way opened the markets of America to the producer of fruits and vegetables. There was a clamorous demand for refrigerator cars. The reason a railroad cannot afford to have its own refrigerator cars is because the fruit or berry season in any one place is short. For instance, six weeks covers the great period of the Lake Erie grape belt, one month is about the limit on Michigan peaches, strawberries from southern Illinois are gone in two or three weeks. Therefore, to handle the cars advantageously, the railroads find it much better to rent them or simply to haul them on a mileage. The business is a specialty in itself and requires most astute generalship to make it pay. Cars have to be sent to Alabama in February and March, North Carolina a little later, then West Virginia. These same cars then do service in the fall in Michigan. It naturally follows that much of the time cars have to be hauled empty, and this is a fact that few people figure on when computing receipts from tonnage. Now, instead of the good old way of sending a man in charge, there are icing stations, where the car is looked for, thoroughly examined, and cared for as a woman would look after a baby. In order to bring apples from Utah to Colorado, and oranges from California to Arizona, ice houses have to be built on the desert at vast expense, and this in a climate where frost is unknown. To work the miracle of modern industrialism requires the help of bespectacled scientists from Germany and a fine army of artists, poets, painters, plumbers, doctors, lawyers, besides the workers in wood and metals. The whole business is a creation, and a beneficent one. It has opened up vast territories to the farmer, gardener, and stock raiser, where before cactus and sagebrush was supreme and the prairie dog and his chum, the rattlesnake, held undisputed sway. To the wealth of the world it has added untold millions, not to mention the matters of health, hygiene and happiness for the people. The Scotch-Irish blood carries a mighty persistent corpuscle. It is the blood that made the Duke of Wellington, Lord Bobbs, Robert Fulton, James Oliver, James J. Hill, Cyrus Hall McCormick and Thomas A. Edison. It makes fighters, inventors and creators, stubborn men who never know when they are licked. They can live on nothing and follow an idea to its lair. They laugh at difficulties, grow fat on opposition, an obstacle only inspires them to renewed efforts. Yet their fight is fair and in the true type there is a delicate sense of personal honour which only the strong possess. Philip D. Armour's word was his bond. He never welshed, 
and even his most persistent enemies never accused him of double dealing. When he fought, it was in the open, and he fought to a finish. Then, when his adversary cried, Enough! he would carry him in his arms to a place of safety and bind up his wounds. Rightly approached, his heart was as tender as a girl's. In business he paid to the last cent, and he expected others to pay too. For clerks in a comatose state, and the shirker who would sell his labour, and then connive to give short count, he had no pity. But for the stricken or the fallen, his heart and his purse were always open. He gloried in work, and could not understand why others should not get their enjoyment out of it also. He kept farmer's hours throughout his life, going to bed at nine o'clock and getting up at five. He prized sleep, God's great gift of sleep, and used to quote Sancho Panza, God bless the man who first invented sleep. Yet he slept only that he might arise and work. To be well and healthy and strong and joyous was to him not only a privilege, but a duty. If he used tobacco, it was never during business hours. For strong drink he had an abhorrence, simply because he thought it useless, save possibly as a medicine, and he believed that no man would need medicine if he lived rightly. Philip Armour foresaw the possibilities of the West and the Northwest, and in company with Alexander Mitchell, Diamond Joe Reynolds, Fred Layton, John Plankinton, and others, took great personal pride in the upbuilding of the country. He was possessed of an active imagination. In a bigger, broader sense, he was a dreamer. In his every action and thought, he was a doer. He was very fond of children, and would drop almost any work he had in hand to talk for a few minutes with a small boy or girl. He kept a stock of small Swiss watches in his desk to present to his junior callers. His great hobby was presenting his men with a suit of clothes, should they suggest anything out of the ordinary or do anything which attracted his commendation. Nearly all of those close to him were presented with gold watches. It was in the late seventies. Mr. Armour, with officials, was inspecting the St. Paul Railway. A rumour was circulating that Armour and Company was in financial trouble, and Mr. Armour was so advised. His return was so prompt that it was suggested that he must have come down over the wire. He was very much incensed, and his first query was as to who had started the rumour. The president of a Chicago bank had loaned Armour and Company $100,000, note due in 90 days. For some reason known only to himself, he had made a demand on the cashier for the payment of this note some 60 days before it was due and very naturally, in the absence of Mr. Armour, did not get his money. Everett Wilson, at that time, was a member of the Ogden Boat Club, and was quite friendly with a son of the president of the bank above referred to. This young man remarked to Mr. Wilson that he had never felt so sorry for a man in his life as he did for his father the day before. He said Phil Armour had come over to the bank, had bearded his father in his den, and had gone after him so fiercely, had gotten under him in so many ways, had lampooned him up dale and downhill, 
that there was nothing left of his father but a bunch of apologetic confusion, and that the interview had ended by Mr. Armour's throwing a hundred thousand dollars in currency in the gentleman's face. The young man said he never knew that a man could be so indignant and so voluble as Mr. Armour was, and that it had made a lasting impression on him. Philip Armour had very high business ideals. To sell an article at more than it was worth, or to deceive the buyer as to quality in any way, he would have regarded as a calamity. He delighted in the thought that the men with whom he traded were his friends. That his prosperity had been the prosperity of the producing West, and also to the advantage of the consuming East, were great sources of satisfaction. To personal criticism he very seldom made reply, feeling that a man's life should justify itself, and that explanation, excuse, or apology is unworthy in a man who is doing his best to help himself by helping humanity. But in spite of his indifference to calumny, his years were shortened by the stab of a pen, the thing which killed Keats, the tumult of wild talk concerning embalmed beef, started by a Dr. William Daly, who shortly afterward committed suicide, and taken up to divert public attention from the unpreparedness of the country properly to take care of the health of its volunteer soldiery. Mr. Armour, as father of the packing-house industry, was keenly sensitive to these slanders on the quality of the product and the honesty of the packers. The charges were thoroughly investigated by a board of army officers and declared by them to be without foundation. Scandal and defamation in wartime are imminent. The literary stink-pot rivals the lidite of the enemy. Fever, envy, malice and murderous tongues strike in the dark and retreat in a miasmic fog. Here were forces that Philip Armour, as unsullied and as honourable as Sir Philip Sidney, could not fight, because he could not locate them. About the same time came one Joseph Leiter, who tried to corner the wheat of the world. Chicago looked to Armour to punish the presumptuous one. And so Armour, already bowed with burdens, kept the Straits of Mackinaw open in midwinter, and delivered millions of bushels of real wheat for real money to meet the machinations of the bounding lighter. Here, too, Armour was fighting for Chicago to redeem, if possible, her good name in the eyes of the nations. And Armour won, but it was like that last shot of brands sent after he himself had fallen. Philip Armour slipped down into the valley and passed out into the shadow, unafraid. Like Serrano de Bergerac, he said, I am dying, but I am not defeated, nor am I dismayed. And so they laid his tired, overburdened body in the windowless house of rest. End of chapter 10